meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, you feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is The Fragrance of Discipline. How sweet is the fragrance of discipline? In this episode, we discuss the benefits of discipline, both in meditation and in daily life. This talk was recorded in 2013. Today we are joined by John Ankele. John is a longtime teacher of Shambhala training and is a video producer. His work has been broadcasted on PBS and ABC TV and has been shown at the Museum of Modern Art, the Smithsonian, the United Nations, and the Margaret Mead Film Festival. Here's John to take away the discussion. It's a curious image, this fragrance of discipline an odd sort of juxtaposition, fragrance and discipline. Normally we think of fragrance as uh, fragrance of flowers, of uh, perfume, of incense. But fragrance of discipline. Fragrance is not a word that, that I use probably very often in my life. I don't know, three times maybe. Uh, and it's not a word that I hear very often in conversation, although a few weeks ago, uh, my goddaughter came up from Virginia with her boyfriend, Grace and Elliot. And I hadn't seen uh, Grace since she was a baby, and she's in college now. Uh, so I was... Uh, Delighted to have this chance to connect with her and feeling a little bit remiss over the years in not having made more of an effort to, you know, get to know my goddaughter. Um, but so I had this opportunity. She was going off to Argentina to study photography for a semester abroad, and um, she wanted to come to New York to see some photos. So I planned to take her and her boyfriend, when I found out he was coming, to some museums and uh, to take them out to dinner and to, to a show. That was my plan, and it worked out nicely, and, and we had a, a lovely time. But when they first arrived, um, it was quite something, you know, to see her after all, all, since I hadn't seen her. My joke was, I hadn't seen you since before you could walk, and uh, now you're walking fine, but and, and she humored me, you know. But uh, I was trying to break the ice and get to know her, after all. And um, so anyway, we, the first night they came and um, and to our place and and sat in the living room, and this was a chance to talk. And and she was really very talkative, and I I did get a f- nice feel for her, and and. As I said, it was a kind of delightful to get to know her as an adult and not miss the opportunity altogether. But Elliot, he didn't say much at all. He just kind of sat over to one side. 
And every time I looked over at him, he just kind of looked at me, you know, and I thought, well, he's probably pretty shy. I mean, it's awkward, first of all. I mean, his girlfriend is bringing him up to New York from Virginia. They've never, either one of them, been here before. They're coming to our place. He doesn't know me from Adam. But it, it, it was easy with her as I got to talk, but kind of awkward with him. And uh, at some point during the conversation, somebody mentioned something about Elliot's truck. They're from uh, down at where Virginia Tech is. It's a gun culture, you know. And so I thought, well, Elliot, he's kind of a uh, strong and silent type, or maybe even macho. You know, I pictured him driving around in his truck. Um, but we, it was fine. We went out to dinner, and uh, still he hadn't said anything, but he ordered salmon. And when the salmon came, he took a bite, and he put his fork down, and he looked at me and said the first thing, really, that he'd said to me all evening. He said, this sauce is exquisite. <laughs> and I was taken a little aback, you know. It kind of blew my stereotype right there. And I thought, and then he handed a bite to Grace. You know, he said, Grace, taste this sauce. He said, I believe it has a little coconut in it and some coriander. (laughs) And so as the meal went on, he was very complimentary and appreciative that, you know, I had brought them to this place in the neighborhood. And he made a few more comments about the food. And finally, at one point, I said, are you a chef? You know, and he said, no, I work for Enterprise Rent-A-Car. But he said, I love to cook. And he said, I would love to cook breakfast for us on Saturday morning. And we had some friends coming over, Annette and her daughter, who's a, a photographer also, and I thought it'd be nice for these young women the same age to meet and everything. But Elliot wanted to, to cook breakfast. And so uh, on Saturday, this was on Thursday night, and we had a day together to kind of get to know each other and go to the museum. And then on Saturday morning, I took him down to Fairway because we didn't have any food in the house. And uh, Fairway, if you don't know it, it's on 125th Street. There are two of them. It's a big warehouse-like place, and it has the most fantastic selection of fresh produce, fresh fish, everything. Fairway has everything. And people come from New Jersey. They come from all around to shop at Fairway. It's an experience. And so I thought, well, it'll... Elliot, you know, he's into food. This will be great. I'll take him down there. So we went down about 8 o'clock in the morning trying to beat the crowds. And uh, we went in, and the first room you go into at Fairway, it's, it's bigger than this room, and it's filled with vegetables and fruit. And they're displayed in the most beautiful fashion. You know, all the red peppers and the green peppers and the yellow peppers and the orange peppers, and they're piled very high, and it's just quite an experience. And we walked in there, and he just kind of froze in his tracks. And he just looked around and said, almost as if to no one, he said, my mom would love this. (laughs) And um, so he said, I want to make some chopped fruit, fresh chopped fruit for us for breakfast. So he went around, led me around. I had the cart or a basket, and we got some, uh, some papaya, and some mango, and he would feel these to make sure they were 
just ripe, you know, and some kiwi, and it was going to be very exotic. And we got to the cantaloupes, and um, he stood there and he looked, and it was this huge pyramid of cantaloupes, you know, how it is. And he started feeling through them, and then he took one off and he handed it. At first, he smelled it, and he said, Here, smell the navel. He said, It has a certain fragrance. So I smelled the navel of the cantaloupe, you know, and then he was feeling some more and pulled some more off, and he was handing, he'd smell them, the navel of the cantaloupe, and then hand it to me to smell the navel of the cantaloupe. And it got to be like I had a whole armful of cantaloupes here, you know, waiting till he came to whatever it was, the fragrance that was right. And finally he got one, and he just stopped and he said, this is the one we want. And he smelled it and handed it to me, and I smelled it. And it had a distinctive uh, fragrance. And then we did some more shopping. He got Norwegian salmon and, and uh, some goat cheese with shies. And weren't those the best omelets Annette, that you've ever had? Anyway, but the point of the cantaloupe uh, episode is to say that it holds a key to understanding the Dharma as direct experience. It is through our senses that our life comes to us. So fragrance, the pure sense experience, that has a distinctive quality that is beyond words. So we could say, ripe, the aroma of the the cantaloupe, the fragrance, is fresh. We could say, it's sweet. But words could not capture it. Words are pointers, perhaps. Words are approximations. But to really know the fragrance of the cantaloupe, we would have to actually pick it up and and smell it. There is a moment of no separation in which, when we are open, our life flows through us. And we could call that a kind of intimacy. Not intimacy in the more particular sense, but intimacy in the broadest sense. And we could say that intimacy is possible in any moment, any experience, any encounter, any relationship, any person. In this sense, intimacy is the absence of resistance. There is nothing to get in the way. 
And we are not ourselves being heavy-handed about it. In other words, direct experience requires on our part a light touch. That's the way of the Dharma. From ego's point of view, a light touch is impossible. Ego is always wanting to get in there and fix things and manipulate the situation and control it and move things around and arrange things so that the result conforms to ego's desire so that the result pleases ego, so that the result conforms to our pictures of what we think that moment should be. So we could call that ego's approach grindstone, the grindstone approach versus the light touch. My grandfather had a grindstone that I inherited and it was you um, fixed it uh, like a vice grip to the bottom of a table and then it had a crank on it and you turned the crank and this stone went around and you put a knife against it and then apply pressure and create resistance and sharpen the knife in that way and that for me is a metaphor for ego's grindstone approach because ego wants to sharpen itself so that it can cut away those parts of ourself that it doesn't like and discard them and then use that sharp quality to carve out a life that will please ego a life that conforms to ego's pictures of how ego thinks it should be. So what is wrong with that approach? Well, it doesn't work, mostly. Don't all of the uh, fairy tales and myths and poetry of the wisdom traditions across the world tell us just that, that it doesn't work. Even cartoons, I was thinking, sometimes will tell that. You know, the character gets everything uh, aligned just right, just the way he wants it, just the way he wants it. And, you know, works and works and struggles and strives. And then finally, it's all there. It's all in place. But the one thing that he wanted most is missing happiness. Happiness is missing. You know, there's some kind of poof or of realization that this didn't do it after all this effort. It didn't work. So the Dharma is inviting us to look into that whole approach that pervades our, our culture and our consciousness and say, wait, look, 
take another look at this. The grindstone approach is the approach of struggle. It's the approach of striving. And it won't get us where we want to go. Because struggle and striving, um, desire, our reflected desire for things to be other than they are, an intense wish on our part for things to be other than they are. And that means there's going to be a lot of anxiety and fear connected with that, just by, by definition, struggle and striving, because we're going to worry, you know, uh, is it going to work out or is it not? You know, this particular strategy I'm employing right now, is it going to get me where, where I want to be? So there's going to be a constant undercurrent of worry that we won't get there. So the very thing we probably want most, which is to be free of worry and anxiety and fear, you know, it's not going to work because they are the vehicle that are taking us there. How can we arrive at a place of contentment if our means of getting there is fraught with fear and anxiety? So the Dharma teachings are taking the opposite approach from the grindstone approach. They are taking the approach of light touch. And light touch simply means instead of trying to force things, situations, circumstances, people, to conform to our idea of how we think it should be, we let up. We let up on that whole trip. We lighten up. We let go. And we find our ease in an altogether different approach. Light touch. So what would light touch look like um, generally in, in our life uh, in general? For example, it would mean that we would... Um, accept ourselves even when we weren't living up to our requirements of how we think we should be. Or accepting ourselves when we're not living up to all those requirements that have been laid on us by parents and family and culture and up through the years. All that baggage that we're carrying now. Or light touch would be accepting the other person when they're not doing what we want them to do or being the way we want them to be. Light touch would be uh, allowing life to be as it is even though we're experiencing things we would rather not. Even though we'd rather run away let's say, or sweep it under the carpet or, or deny that it's happening. So 
that's just looking at it generally in terms of what it would look like, light touch in, in our life off the cushion, in terms of our practice, meditation practice, on the cushion. The practice of meditation itself is the practice of light touch because we're not doing anything. We're just sitting. We're not striving to get somewhere else. We're not struggling to fix ourselves or turn ourselves into the sort of person we think we should be. Instead, we're just awake, aware, allowing that natural wakefulness, that natural awareness to come forward. Very good. Yeah. Being versus doing. We're not doing anything. We're ju- just to be. Power versus force. Is force. Ah. Yes, there is, there is a power. There is a strength, at least. Sometimes in, in the Shambhala teachings, we talk about a confidence the confidence just to accept and to be there with whatever arises. In this case, if we're doing meditation, we are there uh, witnessing whatever arises in our mind. So we're bringing a light touch even to that. I think Pema Chodron's image is, she says, you touch those thoughts that you see when you're meditating as if you were touching a bubble with a feather. You know, very light, light touch. In the same way, when we come back to the breath, we're touching the breath lightly. We're joining the breath. We're finding the breath. We're joining the breath. The breath is breathing us at that moment. We're allowing the breath just to be what it is and just to place our mind on it and be there with it. So it's all about light touch. Our practice is. Letting go, lightening up, finding our ease. And when we do that, all of that energy that went into the striving and the struggle, that energy gets freed. And it's still ours, but it now becomes the energy of wakefulness, the energy of awareness that's just alive. So you're looking at all those stories that you're telling yourself as you're sitting there, meditating, you know, and suddenly you realize that's not my life. This is my life. This, this moment. Light touch. As we let go of these stories, we change. So, for example, if I were to say to you, you are responsible for my unhappiness. What you've said, what you've done, you have made me unhappy. You are to blame for my misery, 
something like that, some version of that. We, we may all be familiar with that particular story. But when we let go of those kinds of stories, then that negative energy starts to dissolve or transform, we could say. The blame, the resentment, it starts to dissolve, and instead we discover within ourselves a reservoir of compassion. That's why the Buddhists talk about wisdom and compassion as being two parts of the same thing. It's the wisdom that sees that those are just stories that we're telling ourselves, thoughts we're believing in. And it's the compassion that we discover when we call forth that wisdom that sees through that stuff. That reservoir of compassion is really um, generosity. It's our capacity for forgiveness, our capacity for gratitude. All the things that make life rich, really rich. And when we approach the world in that way, with that light touch, then it's a light touch that we get back. Because we, if we know what it's like, you approach the world with a jab, you know, you're jabbing, jabbing, and then you're going to get a left hook back, or more than one but you approach the world with a light touch and you start getting a light touch back because people uh, trust you. They don't have to, to fear you. We discover in the light touch of letting go wisdom and compassion. And this wisdom and compassion together has a healing power a power that is healing. There was a uh, Buddhist teacher from Japan in the 1930s who came to America, and I think he worked in a laundromat or something and, and didn't know the language, and you know he worked hard to learn the language. He was on his own. He was living by himself and you know, got a couple of students finally and became one of the great Buddhist teachers in America long before... Uh, the great wave of Buddhist teachers from Tibet and Japan in the 1960s. This was back in the 1930s. And he said, the hinges of our minds turn gracefully to open our hearts so that I can see myself in you and you yourself in me. So this was the Buddha's faith that if we could simply, simply just be alive in the moment, relieved of the need for things to be other than they are, then satisfaction, the fulfillment, even the joy that we're looking for would be ours. Finally, I wanted to relate this uh, understanding of light touch to Earth Day. Today is Earth Day, April 22nd. 
the Buddhists uh, revere Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva of compassion, as an important figure. Avalokiteshvara is a Sanskrit uh, name for a figure that appears as in female form in China, I believe, is Kuan Yin, in Japan is Kanon. So this is a universal figure, the Bodhisattva of compassion. But the Sanskrit original name, Avalokiteshvara, means one who hears the sounds of the world, or more particularly, one who hears the cries of the world. And the Buddhists have an understanding of um, sacred world. The world is sacred, we say in Shambhala Buddhism, and it means interdependence. Interdependence, that we are a part of a web of interconnections and relationships with all sentient beings, and not only sentient beings, but all of creation. Sacred world. And this view fits very nicely with the view that deep ecologists hold of the earth as a living organism that is alive and is crying out for light touch after decades of our pillaging and uh, brutalizing it. And this organism is filled with intelligence. The intelligence of that seed that knew to use the wind and the rain and the sun to become a cantaloupe. That intelligence, or the intelligence of the maple seed that came down in that whirligig thing and planted itself in the earth and now has come up as a seedling, a maple seedling, and will and know to grow into this great tree with all its distinctive characteristics and qualities that we may encounter one day and enter into a relationship with. So our intelligence then, and we're supposed to be somehow, uh, which is a little questionable, at the top of this hierarchy of intelligence, if you look at the world today, one would wonder But from the Buddhist perspective, that deep intelligence is called Buddha nature. So that it's our capacity to wake up and see this web of interconnections and relationships and act accordingly. Be accountable. Be responsible. Respond to the web of interrelationships. So that when we experience the world directly in this intimate way that we've been talking about, then we come to see that our Buddha nature is nothing other than the mountains and the rivers and the great wide earth. So we could change this, add to this quotation that I mentioned a few minutes ago from Senzaki Roshi from the 1930s. 
the hinges of our minds turn gracefully to open our hearts so that not only can I see myself in you and yourself, you yourself in me, but we might add, together we can begin to see the earth as our body, as the body of the Buddha. So we have a few minutes. If you like to, uh, if you have any thoughts on this yourself, um, any thoughts on or questions on the fragrance of discipline? Yeah. Um, thank you. That was wonderful. Um, on the distinction between light touch and grindstone approach, sometimes when you spoke, I thought I got it, but then somehow in the back of my mind, I'm still struggling not seeing completely that you need to remove the grindstone approach altogether. You need to be what? Like, you need to remove it or... or remove or, it. Yeah, ju- the just grindstone. because, you know... Accepting things as they are is good, and you can find joy in in that. But then, at times, you do need to sharpen yeah. that edge and, and sort Indeed. of not trying to fix things altogether. But yeah. that's more, you know, motivational. You know, like it gives you something to work toward. And I know I'm probably speaking out of the ego again, but no. I think you're pointing to an important distinction. Yeah, what we're saying here is that if ego has an agenda to get something for itself, you know, ego based on its own desires, its own um, sense of uh, what we say passion, aggression, and ignorance, in these teachings, our ego, but it means, you know, desire or clinging or aggression, you know, pushing away, hatred or ignorance, confusion, all these things that are, are invested in our self that have to do with being kind of self-absorbed and self-contained and insular and not seeing oneself as a part of this whole web of interconnections. That's the, the problem. So that's the struggle and the striving that we want to let go of. When we do let go of that, and then we discover this reservoir of compassion, it's not passive. The compassion itself is able to respond. It's responsible, but in a way that is going to be more effective because it's pure. It's not so complicated with all this other my own agenda, my own trip stuff so that its response is going to be more appropriate and more effective. So yes, there is a need to act, for sure. So it's almost like that light touch gives you a pause or a moment of calmness or clarity, and then you act, so to speak. Yes, yeah, that could very well be the, the way that it plays out. Okay, thank you. Yeah. But no, we don't want to say... I mean, sometimes Buddhism has been accused of being passive, and it has in some 
cultural expressions. But in America, it's very interesting to see this movement toward engaged Buddhism. Thich Nhat Hanh, Joanna Macy, there's uh, been a whole you know, effort, intentional effort on the part of Buddhists in America to, to uh, create a form that is responsive to economic injustice and you know, uh, concerns of, of, of the earth. The, the pillaging of the earth. And so. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you, Han.